From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri Pendikala, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th Degree Black Belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. And joining us today is Sensei Chris Richards, 3rd Degree Black Belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you, Sri. Thank you, Sri. And we also have a special guest today, Tom Dunham. He's a blue belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu, training out of the Kensington Dojo. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me. So Sri uh, and Chris, thanks for putting this together with Tom. I think this is going to be really important for all of our listeners and students to hear firsthand uh, about uh, a Kobukai student who has had you know, a violent encounter at his workplace. Uh, we'll get into some of the details of that, and you'll understand um, you know, sort of the environment that this happened in. And we're going to kind of talk through, I think, questions that many students have when they think about the possibility of getting into a violent encounter. I, I know we talk about this in class and what it might be like, but sometimes it's, you know, it's just your teacher, you know, preaching at you. And, and it's good to hear from, you know, somebody who is a peer for the students uh, who's been through this experience and, and can tell you firsthand, um, you know, what it's like, what it felt like, what he was thinking about when it was happening, you know, did or did not uh, martial art training come into play? Uh, was it valuable? Was it not? Has it changed his mind about the martial arts or how he trains? So I think these are all going to be um, some great things to explore. Uh, and, and as we do that, you know, we also w- want to be sensitive to Tom um, because from our side, right, we're, we're listening to this and it's interesting and it's, um, you know, it's really cool to hear about how things went, but, you know, he experienced it personally and, uh, it, it's, it's not cool. It's, you know, it's not awesome. It's not a movie. It's real life and it's, it's dangerous and it's horrible. And so as you're listening to this, you know, also try to, um, you know, empathize with our speaker and realize there's more to, uh, an altercation than just the physical part. There is certainly an emotional and an intellectual part uh, to it also. And I think we're going to hear about some of that today. So I'm very excited to have Tom with us. And um, Chris, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, sure, I'll build on this a little bit. So Tom was also one of my first students. Tom and I spent a lot of time in the Kensington Jojo, uh, tons of mornings, six to seven, and he was a regular student. You know, I was able to watch Tom come in the door and transform as a person coming in. And I'm interested to see a lot of, you know, how we were able to help um, prepare him for this altercation. I think she and you also touched on it a little bit too, is when something goes down, it's not like what you're training in class. It's violent. It's chaotic. It's not pretty. So, you know, what we do, we try and tell you that up front and hopefully we give you the tools and techniques to be able to deal with it if and when it does yeah thank you sensei that's exactly where we want to go so um i'm just going to start out kind of with some questions that i think um everybody would ask in one way or the other and and just hear a little bit about um the experience so i i guess the first thing tom would I'd like to just talk about is what was the environment uh, that this altercation happened in? Um, well, it was it was work. I was I was a correctional professional at the time, and so we were in a, a holding cell area uh, preparing for people to be able to go out to wreck. It was during pandemic, so it was very very high tension because you know you could have freedom of movement, you couldn't you know the next day. Um, so emotions and tensions we're running at a steady high pace, unfortunately, due to, due to everything going on and constantly be evolving and changing. It was, you know, right after a holiday, um, generally tensions are a little higher then because people can't be with their family around a holiday. Um, but you know, it was a, it was a late early afternoon. Um, I was, you know, doing what I was, um, you know, trying to do for, you know, having these, these, uh, gentlemen, be able to release some steam and go out and into the rec yard. And, and uh, you know, uh, I was following what we had to do and it was just kind of a, a 
weird feeling. You know, I had a gut feeling, but, you know, I was, I was kind of ignoring it because it was going to be a long day and I was going to go into another eight-hour shift. Sure. Now, just to be clear, th- this is um, some sort of law enforcement holding facility that you were in? Yes, it was a, it was a lockup uh, facility. It was a county facility. Um, okay. So we had everything from short term. We'd be there for, you know, the weekend, three days, depending on a court hearing on a Monday to we had guys who were serving uh, long term sentences and they were finishing out their sentence with us the last couple of years. Um, right. So we had a, a vast variety of, of, of people who committed different offenses in the public. Sure. Sure. And is this typically um, a dangerous environment? I would imagine it is. It's a highly dangerous environment. You could be alone um, and it could be you. You with a one-on-one, it could be you versus 180, depending on what part of the facility you're in. Um, where I was with the, the unit, I went to go uh, run rec in. It's a 60-man unit. Um, all all the cells were full, so 60 guys were there. Um, so it was it was uh, it's always a dangerous environment, no matter which way you go. Even the most uh, pleasant or warming offender um, can turn on you in a heartbeat because something that you don't know happened on the outside that is affecting them or something that's going on on the inside um, that they never let on to and they saw an opportunity to take advantage of you, uh, whether it be physically, emotionally, or, or try to guilt you into doing something. Yeah, and you would have to imagine that, you know, if somebody is already uh, incarcerated, that they're the type of person that, you know, would break social norms, uh, you know, cultural norms, not think twice about being violent or, or committing a crime. So I, I guess you're sort of on all the time, highly aware of, of what's going on around you. Well, and that's the thing is you, you have to be switched on. It's very hard to be switched on all the time. It's very taxing and very tiring. Um, that's why there's such a, a high rate of incidents uh, in law enforcement uh, where guys like, oh, I didn't see it coming. And it's because you're so exhausted mentally. You, you switch it off and you're just like, yeah, this is the routine. This is the same stuff I deal with every day. You know, he's going to put his socks on. He's going to be 10 minutes late because he's going to drag his feet. And, you know, next thing you know, the guy who's always very passive is is swinging at you. So sure. It's that weird switch that it, it's hard. It's very, very human nature hard. Is, uh, human nature is very unpredictable. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. All right. Um, so I guess I'm going to get right to the question that I'm sure everybody's wondering, and then we'll we'll go to some other subjects. But do you, do you feel, and we don't have to get into detail yet, but just a general answer, do you feel that your martial art training helped you in any way in this violent encounter? It definitely did. Um, all the training, all the early mornings with Sensei Chris, all the, all the attempts of different training with the uh, South Windsor Dojo, with you being able to come up and show us little tips and tricks and Sensei Tony and Todd, everybody, all the stuff that you guys have taught me over the last it was four years, I think, at the time. Um, it all made a big difference. It all gave application to when the event went down, when the encounter happened. Um, I could hear all of you in the back of my head um, <laughs> with everything going on. Um, you know, and with some of the stuff going on, I actually could hear Sensei Tony lower Kubadachin, like him slapping his thighs. With the, I could hear that in the back of my head. I kind of had a moment of like, is that really happening? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it did make a difference. Um, you know, I was able to, to, to deal with what was in front of me. Uh, I was able to keep a level head. Um, I was always looking out. Um, you know, I had, it was a one-on-one encounter, but I had 59 other potentials that were going to happen. Um, so I was able to keep focus on, on the threat at hand, but was able to keep a focus, a slight focus on the background of the other 59 to see where they were and, and trying to make sure I didn't get jumped by, you know, 58, 59 more people uh, sure. that were trying to take advantage of what was going on with a one-on-one already. It made such a dramatic difference in, in how my situation played out. So to the level that you're comfortable, um, could you just give us a, just a brief synopsis of, of what happened sort of leading up to the situation and then when it, when it actually occurred? Sure. Um, so like any other place there, there were rules, you know, society has rules, a jail has rules. Um, so we have to follow those rules of engagement and everything else and rules and guidelines we have. So, um, when in that day I was given a post assignment, I was carrying out my assignment. 
Uh, and part of that assignment is, you know, to bring inmates to, to the rec yard so that way they can release, ventilate, whatever they got to do. And uh, in order to do that, you have to follow certain rules. And I had one gentleman decide he wasn't going to follow those rules and figured, oh, well, I'll give the line, hey, the last guy let me do this. Well, it's like, dude, I'm not the last guy. I'm not going to lose my paycheck and pension over you. So and I expressed to him that, see the officer in the morning. We'll get you covered. Your unit's going to wreck twice the next day. You're going to be fine. Just you're not going to have anything going on today. So went, ran, uh, ran wreck. Inmates wanted to go back in so they could do personal hygiene stuff and whatnot because rec time is a combination of we can go out and have fun, play, run, exercise. And also you have to do, you know, your phone calls, um, your, your hygiene routine and stuff like that. Otherwise, you know, you're back in your cell. Um, so as we came back in, um, you know, I got everybody in, locked everything up and I had a weird feeling. I'm like, Oh, let me go check on the guy running the unit. Uh, and as I approached, um, this, this individual popped out, um, from, kind of a mask place because the way everything was set up, it's the, where he popped out of, you can't immediately see till you get past another set of doors. So he kind of came out and, uh, caught me off guard a little bit. And, uh, right then I should have realized something was going on. Um, and he said, uh, you know, I was, I was giving him orders to, to get back into the, to the day room. And, uh, <sighs> I can still hear it to this day that really like you watch a weird Halloween horror flick um, type of voice and said, Hey, Hey buddy. And uh, it gave me a, it caught me off guard for a second. I guess I had that moment of like, what? And right after that moment, um, the altercation started, the encounter happened. Um, and two sets of training kicked in, um, my firearms background and my martial arts background. Um, once the gentleman put his hands on me, uh, I locked him up. I locked onto him and he couldn't get away from me. Uh, my firearms side, I was saying kicked in because I immediately was searching my waistband for the gun. I normally carry when I'm off duty all the time and working in a prison, we can't carry a firearm. Uh, then my brain switched over and went, you have nothing. And so I started using a lot of our stuff that's on our, our yellow or white chart to break him away from me, to get him off of me, um, to create distance and start giving uh, him verbal commands. Let me ask you a question here. When, when he, uh, first attacked, mm -hmm. was it, um, with, uh, punches? Was it a tackle? Was it a gripping your clothing? Um, it what was, was his first move? His first move was, uh, Kind of a combination. He went to choke slam me. Uh, okay, and, gotcha. And so hands on your on your throat and trying to push up against a wall or something to that effect. Full on, yeah. Try to try to smash me like you see in Hollywood in my trach, and yep. you know get, get me to suffocate. And he, he hit me hard, um, but I'm lucky. I was, a, I'm a good size bigger than he was for height, and um, I already had a, a a fighting stance. My feet were splayed uh, in more of a position for defense and attack. And, um, all I pretty much did was rock my head back a little bit. And when that happened, I immediately locked onto his wrist and, and crumpled it in and held it tight, which I think completely caught him off guard. Unfortunately, looking for the gun I don't carry gave him time to start contemplating and thinking. Um, and once that happened, um, I did see that he tried to, and I could feel him trying to, to push me over and hook my foot. And at that point is when I started my own uh, defense and I ended up smashing him in the face. I ended up hammer fisting and, uh, and, and I ended up punching him probably two or three times before he let go. Cause the first one was more like he shot a look at me, like an evil, just this evil, like, Oh, I could take it kind of look. And I went and, and just did it again. And I, did it again. And the third time I felt him, I felt full force. He was going backwards. He was losing his balance and, and falling backwards. So I let gravity do its thing. And I let go of him and, you know, broke, 
broke contact and made distance, um, which was short-lived because um, he immediately, uh, once he kind of got his, his faculties back, he immediately charged and was just swinging wildly. Um, he almost looked like a windmill is, is the best way I can describe it, just throwing fists left and right as hard as and fast as he could. And, uh, you know, I was, I was dropping low, getting underneath. I was trying to, you know, pop up as hard and fast as I could to, to pop under a shoulder. Um, he was, he was quick. Um, it was a lot of ducking and dodging a lot of, uh, you know, as it came through to try to, to wrap his arm and push him back or wrap his arm and drop him. Um, you know, at one point he was, he was, you could see the anger escalate. Uh, and the rage starts escalating in him because he wasn't able to land uh, a good contact shot. You know, I, I was getting blows, you know, to the forearm. I was getting blows when I was blocking to my bicep. Um, he tried to come up and really uh, land base my face. Uh, he was going for like a. You ever see it in the movies where like they hold their hands together like a double fist and they swing like a golf club? Oh yeah, yeah. He was he was trying to do one of those and. Uh, <laughs> All the stuff for entries and and and, and drop down for uh, any of and all of our stuff is, is what I was doing basically to get out and underneath that, and you know being six foot one having to drop down to you know four feet and not bend but drop. Uh, it was. I, I'm just glad I've been doing what I've been doing I, to be in the physical condition I was. It sounds like your response is a combination of sort of a natural response with training. So in other words, you know, your body wants to naturally not get hit, right? So it wants yeah. to block in some way, or it wants to remove the target from getting hit, lower your head or whatever. But that's the, that's the natural reaction, but it's, it was also tempered with training. Like you had specific ways to cover to lower your body, to change your stance. And, and maybe that came from some of your training. Do you think it, it definitely did? Uh, cause before, if I go to, to, to dodge a punch, it was, you know, you, I bent forward. I didn't really drop to a knee or squat or, uh, you know, get, get into a good low kubadach. And, uh, you know, in training, I, I learned the hard way when I, after a few times I got popped in the face, uh, of why we do what we do. So I don't get smashed in the face. And that definitely played a huge part in, in the availability of doing it. And also what, you know, Shion, what you have taught and, and through Sensei Chris, what, you know, the legacy you gave him to carry on and bring to me, I could see he was trying to tempt me to go to him. But every time, like the opportunity in the, in the mindset was, I'm going to grab him, you know, I'm going to lunge at him he would maneuver himself closer to that wall of inmates. Um, so it was, you know, it was, I, I could see he was trying to lure me in where if I did get a hold of him and, and try to, you know, put him on the ground or wrap an arm up and put him in, a, in an arrest hold or any type of arm bar um, that I had potentially 59 more people that were about to jump on me once my hands were occupied with him. That's an important point because, you know, oftentimes martial artists, when they train, you know, they're training their self-defense techniques one-on-one -on -one with another person. And maybe they imagine that, you know, an altercation they will get into will be, you know, down a dark alley with a single assailant or whatever. But I think we all know, even outside of, you know, uh, a lockup situation, um, just in, in, you know, a bar or in public, things escalate very quickly from one person to multiple people. And you really do have to be aware of that because, um, you know, whereas the movies will show a martial artist easily taking on five or six people, the truth is good martial art training gives you the ability to handle one person. And, it exponentially would get harder as that number of people increased probably to the point of failure, which would probably just be at three people. Um, so you being extremely aware of uh, his tactics to try to, you know, lure you into a situation where it would be overwhelming force is uh, something I think people need to keep in mind. Um, 
there is no winning a fight. There is surviving a fight. And that involves more than just, you know, did I take this guy down or choke them? It's it's what's the environment that I'm in and what could potentially happen next. So it's good to hear that that was, you know, kind of constantly in your head. Um, it, it, thank you. It, it, it was. It, um, I mean, at one point, he was flailing so much that he actually did. He got a hold of me and uh, used his body like a pendulum. Uh, from the force and, and smashed me into a wall. And that's really where I, I the severe injuries, the, the bigger injuries that I had to have surgery on came from. Um, you know, I ended up bouncing off of, uh, we have, it's, it's like four inch thick bulletproof glass, basically, uh, with steel reinforcement. And I basically bounced off of that thing like a rubber ball. So my head was ringing, my shoulder was on fire, my chest hurt. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I remember I, I, as quickly as I could kind of turn around and got back to, to seeing what was going on. Cause I didn't want him coming and trying to like jump kick or, or, fl- you know, full on just body slam into me while I was against the wall. Uh, cause God knows what that could have cost. And, uh, he was doing a victory lap of all things. And, uh, when he realized I wasn't, you know, dead and down, um, it was like lighting off a Roman candle. He just went full rage again. And, uh, he, he went wild. He, he did almost like a jumping. He charged me and, and he tried to do like a jumping, um, high fist punch. And I happened to catch him under his armpit. And I went to basically try to do our punch. Got Katami. And when I wrapped up around him, he was already in the air. Um, and he ended up wrapping his body like around my arm and with the weight, I, the kid was like 185, 190 pounds. Um, it just took me to the ground and he executed like a perfect triangle textbook. Um, a triangle and, meaning, uh, with his legs or with his arms, with his legs. He, uh, when we hit the ground, he immediately, uh, Worked his legs up and around my rib cage and, uh, and, and through my arm, you know, across my throat and, and put his legs around the back of my neck and, um, and got me and, and got the triangle. And, uh, and how did uh, you recover from that? Um, this is kind of the, I don't know, weird part of the conversation or <laughs> I, uh, I think it was some hate and rage. And I think maybe God came to me that day because, uh, I was gone. Like I, I just remember black and I couldn't hear anything. Couldn't feel anything. I felt my heart beating and then the sound of my heart stopped. And I don't know how long that was for. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, but, um, the next thing I I remember was feeling like I was on fire and I don't know if that was the adrenaline rage, how, whatever you want to call it. And I remember hearing this angry voice and it was, it was an old angry, older man, angry voice of don't die stupid. And the next thing I remember was just feeling like I was on fire and I started doing our, our escape that, you know, we have been learned, we've been taught. And I broke free from him. And I remember grabbing him and like throwing him down the hallway to get away from him. And I got to my feet and I made a lot of distance. And uh, just trying to catch my breath and get my faculty, I guess, back. And uh, my hearing started to work again. And I remember hearing my, uh, I always kept my hand mic on my chest. And then at some point it came off. And I remember hearing the plastic mic banging on the tile floor. And uh, I grabbed it, called our code uh, for an officer being assaulted. And uh, I was eerily calm. Like um, afterwards, some of the guys described it as I was no different in tone as, as what I am now. Um, and then him and I went back at it. He attacked again and he was throwing wild haymakers 
and um, I kind of went to go do the same thing again. Only this time, instead of trying to wrap around and, and you know put him into a choke, I ducked, grabbed him by the chest, put my hand on his chest, and just launched as hard as I could to smash him into a wall. Um, and we had a couple more rounds of that before another officer came down from a unit and started screaming verbal commands at the guy to stop. And he, he wasn't going to, he went to go attack that other officer. And at the same time he was attacking, going to attack that officer that came to help me. Um, I went to go charge him and then two other, uh, two lieutenants showed up and all four of us now were dealing with him. And, um, you know, like you said earlier in Hollywood, you know, you see uh, a martial artist, an actor take on four or five, six guys um, in a movie. And as you're saying, you know, a good martial artist is trained to take on one. And if there was multiples, you know, we hit that point of exhaustion at maybe two to three. Um, I was at that point. We finally got him subdued and my body like shut off. Um, I don't really remember it. Um, but I walked apparently down the hallway towards, towards where the officers were running down towards us and collapsed. Yeah. That's the adrenaline dump. Mm-hmm. And I made it. Um, I remember somebody shaking me and I, and I just remember yelling, go help them. And I got maybe another, I got to my feet, maybe another 20 or 30 feet and then collapsed in the main hallway. And the next thing I know is I'm, I'm being slapped by an officer trying to wake me up. And I had one of my lieutenants grab me and try to, to try to fireman carry me to, uh, to medical. And it was, <laughs> I'm like, just get me to my feet. So he was blind from pepper spray. I was how I was. Um, and we hobbled our way down to medical and I collapsed on her gurney. And I remember all the, I just, I remember a lot of shouting and yelling and it, it, it wasn't me. It was everybody else who, who, who saw me, who saw, you know, I'm a decent sized guy. And, you know, and they all looked at me. It was like, Oh my God, what happened? Yeah. Um, and I really think if, if I hadn't had, if when Kobukai Kensington was opening and the relationship I had with Sensei Chris before he was my sensei, and then him inviting me there and then seeing what we did that first day, uh, that opening day at Kensington, um, and, and reigniting a fire and drive in me to better myself because, you know, I don't think I'd be here. I really think I'd, I'd be a plaque on a wall somewhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, and I think for our listeners, too, I want you to realize, because you know most of you may not know Tom. Um, if you did, and you did not know this story at all, you would instantly be like, "This is a really badass dude." I mean, Tom is a really big, strong guy. You know, he's got that um, sort of scary calmness about him and in his voice. He trains in jujitsu. Um, he's an expert marksman, um, you know, all the stuff that you would just say, you know, why would that person even be a target? Why would anybody even be stupid enough to attack them? But that's where you have to realize that when somebody has made those decisions to break all of those sort of unspoken social contracts, the rules are out the window and they're going to do everything they can uh, to win, whether that's dominate, whether that's to cheat, whether that's to surprise, whether that's to bring in other people. And the thing I think martial artists don't understand unless they're in a good dojo like Tom is, where we actually like fight and grapple with other people all the time, is this concept of force of aggression, which is um, even without technique, a high level of aggression has a really dominating force in it. And the way that you were attacked, even the way you described it was less about the specific punch or the specific thing that guy physically or tactically did. And it was about his aggression. You described it as the, as the evil or the, um, 
you know, the rage or it's that ag- aggression that is the hardest thing to deal with. And and in some of your responses, as you just described, were also you using the the force of aggression to you know literally just throw somebody down a hallway or to where to you know to slam somebody down or whatever. And I think everybody just needs to realize that is a really big factor in any kind of you know altercation. Is a untrained person can just simply be overly aggressive, and it's very very hard to deal with, even for a big, strong, highly trained person. So when you're doing your training, you know, if you don't, if you're a listener and don't happen to be in a Kobukai dojo, you you need to question how you're being trained, not just your techniques that you're learning or your belts that you're progressing through, but are you training under stress? Are you being pushed way beyond any physical or mental limit that you ever thought that you could be at? Are you constantly grappling with another human being that doesn't want you to do what you're trying to do with them? Or are you just kind of going through dance moves and kata? Because if it's the latter and you're ever faced with a situation like this or even less than this, there's a large chance you're going to be in in real, real trouble uh, because you have no experience with what it's like to be fighting with or protecting yourself from another aggressive human being. Beyond the situation and beyond how you responded that, you know, dealing with that piece of it um, is something that everybody needs to take into consideration. The other piece of it that you mentioned, I think, and I know we've talked about this in classes, class multiple times is, you know, your body will start having chemical reactions as you deal with aggression and go into a fight. You know, there'll be all sorts of uh, stuff with your dopamine levels and, you know, your adrenaline and, and other things that, really pump you up, right? It puts you in survival mode. No, it definitely does. But, but as soon as that's over, right? As soon as the mind says, I am no longer in immediate danger of that direct attack, um, your body will try to rebalance those chemicals very quickly. And that's where you go into shock. That's where you get weakness in your legs. That's where you become unclear in your thinking. And that happens literally to anyone who has ever described a fight to me and in the couple of altercations I've been in in my entire life. Um, you think you come out of that, even if you did well, like, yeah, you know, like you see in the movies, woo, you know, I'm on the battlefield. Like, and that is absolutely not it at all. It will turn the biggest, strongest man and to sort of the, like the weakest, you know, person real quickly. So everybody needs to be aware of, of that. And I think Tom described it, you know, perfectly having lived it, but, you know, Sensei Chris and myself have told students that, but now you're hearing it directly from somebody who experienced it and it, and it is that. So it's something that everybody needs to be prepared for. So I have a couple questions, Tom, if you don't mind, um, uh, just to kind of walk through, you know, things from the martial art aspect, because I know a lot of our listeners are interested in that in particular. Um, was there a point in sort of the escalation, right? Where it went from you just kind of, you know, telling this person, hey, this is how this is going to go today to the attack. Was there something in between the, those two things um, where things escalated that you witnessed or or that you missed that people should be aware of um, to in a situation they might be in? There was. Uh, and I mean... Hindsight being twenty twenty, um, initially, you know, my initial contact with him, I, you know, never seen him before. Didn't know who he was. I mean, I ran that unit, the previous rotation. I was out of that rotation a couple of weeks, so I mean, that's how much turnover we had. He, uh, he had very childlike demeanor. Do you remember? Uh, and I, I grew up on reruns, but I mean, if you guys remember watching the old black and white Dennis the Menace, and like when he was upset or somebody said, "No, you can't do that," he just kind of scuff his foot in the dirt and then put his hands in his pockets and walk away and you know, walk into the house or something. Um, that's almost exactly the the imagery I want to give you guys because that's how he acted when I said he couldn't go. Like, you're not following the housing unit rules. This is why. So, you know, we're you, you can do this tomorrow, but I can't have you do it today. And that's, that's how he, he walked away. And it kind of set a click in my head, like, that's weird. And I didn't give it much credence 
I just was like, all right, whatever. It's almost the end of the shift and, and I got a weird inmate. No big deal. Um, what I, what really I missed and I realize, you know, now and, and, and talking to sensei and, and you and, um, was the initial, when he came out from behind the corner, when I was walking into the unit, uh, remember on the news, um, maybe last year, year before there were people were running around the cities playing that knockout game. So when somebody would walk by him, they run up and just oh, try yeah. to hammer fist the back of the head and knock him out. Yep. That's his position. When he came out from around the corner, his hand was fisted and cocked low as if like he could come up behind me, jump up and smash me in the back of the head. And so by, so a sneak attack, so a sneak attack. And that was his position when he came around the corner. And I think that's why he was caught off guard because instead of walking away and just continue on with my day after I, you know, locked up the area, uh, I went in to go check on the officer that was working to make sure he didn't need anything. And, uh, I think that's what caught him off guard. And obviously I wasn't expecting somebody to jump out of the, you know, the dark alley here, so to speak, um, and in front of me. So I was caught off guard. Uh, if my brain had processed 30 seconds faster, maybe I would have realized that that imagery that he presented was he was going to run up and try to knock me out if I was facing the other way and I needed to fly tackle him right there. Um, unfortunately, my brain didn't click that and, you know, the altercation started. I think that's a good lesson for people because often we imagine a direct altercation that happens immediately, right? Mm. Yes. You know, you say something to somebody and the other guy doesn't agree with you and immediately hauls off and punches you. And oftentimes that is not the case. I know of situations where, uh, you know, not in, in your environment, but, you know, people having words with somebody in a bar and then that person completely disengaging from them and them thinking it's over. But the guy walks out to his car and comes back in with a bat or a gun or waits for that person outside until they leave an hour later because they want the advantage of the sneak attack. So it doesn't happen directly. Sometimes it happens later um, while that person's rage builds and they plan on a way to win, you know, without having that direct altercation. It sounds like that's what happened with you. Uh, and then later on, I found out that, you know, he, uh, the entire time Rick was running, um, he was plotting. Um, cause now in hindsight and, um, you know, th this wasn't a, uh, um, a recovery by any means by myself, uh, my family here, you, uh, sensei, Chris, uh, everybody at the dojo. Um, and then I had to have some professional help and then, you know, kind of thinking about things and reliving things. I realize now I can see he took his shoes off. He took his socks off. He was barefoot on tile. He had a necklace and a watch on when I first saw him. He wasn't wearing those when we were in the fight. He was preparing. He was preparing himself and getting ready. And he knew in his mind that this is his line. He's now crossing and he, I am his target. Um, so, yeah, it's not like you see in Hollywood where it's a, a shove and a shove and a bar fight. And then, you know, somebody Aikido masters them over the top of the bar at the bartender. Um, it can be very sneaky. <laughs> Uh, like you said, in other experiences you've talked to people about and some you've had uh, where people can sit there and wait like a serpent and wait till you're not paying attention and strike with that surprise because that's the only way they're going to get an advantage. Right. Did you um, find that when the altercation started that there was any sort of disbelief on your part that this was really happening? You know, you knew it was happening, but was there any sort of like, I, I can't believe this is happening right now? Um, yes. And I wasn't sure if I actually verbalized it in a, a very uh, George Carlin sounding monologue uh, while I was in the middle of the fight. Uh, but yeah, in, in, in the very beginning, it, it was a disbelief. I'm like, are you serious? I'm a large man. You're smaller than I am. Why are you doing this? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there were some explicatives, many in there at that time. But yeah, it was it was completely in the beginning of uh, disbelief. And then as things progressed, emotions changed. Do you feel that that disbelief just for a moment may have slowed or um, stopped you from taking an initial more violent response? Was it, it almost like, let's see what I need to handle here with, you know, and is this really going to be a thing? 
Uh, it, it did because I've had inmates bigger than me challenge me uh, in a very similar fashion. And I've stood there and looked at them eye to eye and went, we're both going to go to the hospital. It just depends on whether or not you make it out inside 24 hours, you know, was my mindset and standing there looking at them and giving them verbal direction and saying, this is how it's going to be. You, you pick the route. Um, you know, not to sound like a, an ultimate tough guy, but it was one of those, like, I've had guys that tower over me, look at me and go, you know what? I'm going to go make a phone call and call one of my loved ones. I was like, cool. You have a good day. I'm going to be over here if you need anything. Um, so it was that moment of disbelief where I had a guy who's shorter than I am. Who's I think it was 240 at the time. So probably 60, 70 pounds lighter than I was challenging me to a physical altercation. Like it, that, that disbelief did stop me because if I didn't have that moment of disbelief, I think I would have just jumped right on top of him from his standing position, or at least I hope I would have. Um, won't know, uh, situation's gone now, past. Uh, but yeah, no, that disbelief did, it, it threw me for an, enough of a loop where that was a few seconds right before he, he struck. Do you think in that line of work, do you think that law enforcement gets enough real self-defense training beyond sort of using a firearm or, you know, sort of your basic restraint techniques. Are, are they being prepared enough for this kind of uh, situation, do you think? No, I don't think they are. I mean, Connecticut is fairly progressive with training. Uh, I know we are switching to a more BJJ and jujitsu based um, arrest and control technique training, but it's, it's not enough. I mean, you get maybe a week to two in the academy and you get recertification or, or, you know, refresher courses, four hours. And it's never encouraged to train on your own or, you know, incentivize like, hey, if you join a dojo and you train twice a week, you know, we'll work your time off. So that way you can go to class um, or, you know, we'll, the town will pay or the state will pay for your training. There's never enough training and there's never enough time to really show and, and teach and have people retain the, the tactics. It's tough. Um, cause we have to do everything else. You know, we have to, to be the shoulder to cry on. We have to be the, you know, empathetic and, and sympathetic and try to do all these different things. And then, you know, ourselves keep an emotional hardness. So that way we don't fall into a, an emotional trap, so to speak with a, an offender and the training just continue education isn't there. It's, it's just not. Yeah, I would think for anybody that puts themselves sort of in the line of danger as part of their job, um, you know, in any form of, of law enforcement or security or military, you know, I think it's it should be mandatory that there is ongoing training like that. And, and I certainly know there's a lot of other things that they have to know, right? They, they need to know the oh, yeah. laws and they need to know how to do verbal commands and de-escalations and weapons training and, and all of that. But, you know, this seems to be one space where, um, at least what I've run into, so I, I, I ne can't necessarily speak for the situation or, or the facility you are working with, but I, I have trained um, law enforcement and military and security. And there, there seems to be across the board, sort of this ego thing about I'm already trained. I, I have a firearm. I'm a law enforcement officer or a security person. And um, I, I just, you know, I'm tough enough. I don't, I don't need to have this ongoing training like this. Um, you know, when, when am I ever going to use it? And I just feel like that's a problem. That is a problem. Uh, you know, when I see a situation where it takes four or five people to hold down a, a guy in a street arrest because none of the officers really have any technique to do that. Um, it, it just makes me feel like, you know, if it was my brother or, you know, my, my father or something that was a law enforcement officer, I would want him as highly trained as possible. So I know he's coming back every day. So I feel like that's a gap. And, and I'm guessing you're saying that too. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I am saying that it, it, it is a huge gap because 
we check the box and say, okay, we did 80 hours to for initial training. And, you know, twice a year we do eight to maybe 16 hours of refresher. But they depend, and, and they've made people more dependent on the utility belt. So pepper spray, tasers, batons. Um, they've gone away from having people feel confident being able to grab somebody and go hands-on uh, if they had to. Then And we need to get back to that mindset where we have these options that we can use, but you need to understand that these options aren't absolute. Um, so, yeah, I, I really would like to see a better a better training program come out having people realize that, you know, we, we do have batons and pepper spray and tasers. Well, people outside of, the, uh, of a prison environment, inside the prison environment, we don't have that uh, and have them understand that, you know, it's you and your hands are the tools. Everything else is an accessory if you can get to it. That's the point I was hoping you were going to say, actually, because I was going to ask if you were wearing your utility belt. I know people keep pepper spray, firearms, you know, coubatons, other stuff like, you know, in, in their pocket or in their purse or in the, you know, the glove compartment or whatever. But the reality of it is when a violent situation happens, you can almost never get to them. They, they almost just become useless. And next thing you know, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's you and your hands and your feet and your arms and your elbows and your knees and your brain that's really has to deal with what's happening and the ability for you to get to these, you know, things that you're depending on is, is highly unlikely. Yes. Yes, it is. There's an interesting observation here too, because we've been training for, you know, I'm coming up on 20 years and that's three times a week minimum, sometimes five Tom at the time when he, uh, I believe this happened, you were still attending class five times a week. I, I was every chance I had. Um, I was in class. And, you know, we look at the amount of training that we do, and then you contrast it to the four hours or so refresher you get a year, the, the week or two of training in there. It, it just draws an interesting comparison because we say for people to stay sharp into advance in Kopakai Jiu-Jitsu, you really need to be there at minimum twice a week, three times a week. So it's it's obviously a skill that, probably could benefit from more time for all involved. Absolutely, Sensei. Uh, and I know we talked in our last podcast about attendance and how that was really the secret to success. It's it's putting in the reps, training hard, training mentally and physically. Um, and you can't do that, you know, once a week. And you can't do it if you are seeing this as like a hobby or a pastime. You won't have the right mm -hmm. attitude. So, um yeah, it's definitely the secret to survival. If not, you know, pure success. Uh, again, I, I believe all of our instructors say to our students, you know, over and over and over again, um, self-defense is about survival. It's definitely not about like winning or doing the coolest jujitsu technique. About It's about going home. And, you know, we even say that if you happen to get a takedown or to, you know, block a strike to the head, the very next thing you do is run. Right? We tell everybody that. Now, when you're in the military, law enforcement, security, um, you are paid to do the exact opposite, to not run. Right, the, you, you are that force standing between bad people and good people. So you don't have that opportunity, and, and, you, and you must face down that danger. So in my opinion, those people should be the most highly trained people. Uh, definitely. I mean, and, and, you know, that was always um, – a thing I told somebody, I'm like, if you saw me running, run in the opposite direction because I'm going towards the gunfire. <laughs> and and we thank you for that. Agreed. And interesting to note, Shion, uh, it sounds like this guy had a little bit of training. You know, formal, informal, but a triangle is not somebody something that somebody just goes, oh yeah, I saw it on TV and now I'm going to pull it off in the middle of a melee. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, there certainly are YouTube warriors that, you know, can figure out how uh, Sankaku Jimmy is done, but it, it sounds like if you can, if you pull it off, if that's a reaction, you've probably done it before. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. So yeah. having experienced this, do you, did you come back to the dojo um, and change any areas of focus in your training? Uh, did, did, did you feel like I'm not getting enough of this or I need more of this? 
or or was it more just an attitude change about how you train? Uh, I'm really interested to see if it made you say, I, I need to change how I'm training. It, it was kind of an all around change. Um, you know, having nights of just running the, running the chart and doing as much as we could. Um, the repetition, I wanted more repetition. Um, I, I, when I had the opportunity, uh, and I, I know Sensei was joking that, you know, sometimes they wanted to deflate somebody's tires so they could have a private class with, you know, you, Shihan. Uh, there were days I was praying that it would just be Sensei Chris or Sensei Steve and I, um, so I could really hone in on some of my Ike and, and some of my groundwork, uh, and some escapes. And, you know, they'd look at me and go, Hey, what do you feel your weekend? I'd be like that whole section over there on the chart. Uh, can we work this? Um, and I feel it was, gave me the chance. I kind of hyper-focused, I guess. You know, I, I, we'd sit and we'd really work one section and, you know, maybe some Aiki, maybe some jujitsu. Uh, and then, you know, kind of when I felt like sensei would look at me and, and be like, okay, you, you've really cleaned this up. We're going to now work on this stuff that we don't get a chance to and, and focus on just a few things uh, to really tighten it up and clean it up and give it a sharper edge. Uh, and I think mentally it changed a lot. I was, it was a weird calmness. Um, I know I was a little bit more erratic beforehand. I was a little more high strung. Uh, and, and coming out of this, it was no longer looking at, you know, when we were rolling and training as winning and losing, it was, what can I learn from every opportunity I just had? So if I got to roll with say Sensei Jake or, or Senpai Kyle and what, how did they put me in an arm bar? How did they maneuver and what were they watching? Um, and then I, I don't know, it was a, maybe a year ago you were up visiting and you, we were all up in, in the South Windsor dojo and I was working with a, a white belt and you came over and you looked at me and you said, okay, you know, you can defeat them. Now just sit and watch and wait. And it took me a little bit to kind of contemplate that. And I was like, all right. So I just kind of watched to see what they were doing and to see how they were maneuvering. Uh, and a light bulb went off in my head um, that that was something I would watch Sensei Chris, I mean, Sensei Steve do when they were rolling with me being my size and, you know, my strength levels and watching and seeing where I would kind of peek out because I was physically tired or, or, you know, I couldn't breathe because I exhausted myself trying to push through something that if I just waited a few seconds, they might have given up on that grip and tried something else, which would have given me the chance to escape. Um, so I, I think all around it has changed everything I've been doing in the dojo for how I want to suck in the information, um, how I'm trying to be a better example to everybody else of if you want to make this a hobby, go find someplace else because we're here to show you how to defend yourself. And if you only stay for so long, I want you to be able to walk away with enough skill level that if somebody my size comes to you, you can at least break away and escape. And I think that's really changed a lot in my mindset and my mentality with everything that's been going on. And I don't know, Sensei Chris can speak to it better because he's got the thousand foot view. Um, but I, I really, really do think everything has changed how I've been just trying to learn and trying to express and, and train. Yeah. Sensei Chris, have you seen a change after, you know, Tom recovered from this situation? Have you seen a change in his approach and have you made any changes as an instructor as a result of this? Um, so as far as a change, I'd say absolutely. You know, having Tom with me from the beginning, he's a big dude. I'm 210, 215. He's got a lot of size on me. He was a big, strong guy to begin with, um, having watched him come through. But I would see where it's changed. He kind of hit on it. It's it's much more focused. It's the calm in the, in the storm that he's really achieved over time. Because I remember some of those first roles. You go, we're, we're really all over the place. And I got to control a really big guy. But from that time of him coming up through white, through yellow, having the altercation happen, um, even when he came back, uh, when Tom first came back, I, I basically said, you're only rolling with me. He needed time to get his head right, right? Is to be able to focus back and kind of still process some of this. And it's how he's matured and, and become stronger after the incident, which I'm most proud about. 
because he he's always been a leader in the dojo, but it's how he leads, how he imparts his perspective now to others, the importance and the seriousness. We've always looked for those students that have that, yeah, we're, we can come out and have fun, but guys, when it gets down to brass taxes, we're doing real dangerous and serious things. Take it seriously and give everything you got. Um, and he is a shining example of that. And I think when I look at that evolution over time from the person that he was, it's not the time you've changed. It's just how you process these things, how you put the power to the pavement, how you approach them in that calm demeanor that you now have. But when you want to turn things on, there is not a lot that people can handle with you. And I say that as the guy that rolls around with you the most, because I have to, I have to put in my own work to be able to keep up. So Tom, if you had to give advice to martial arts students, right? Realizing that the vast majority of them are, are not going to be in law enforcement or the military or security or anything like that, but are just everyday people that go to the office or go to work or whatever. What would you give them as, as somebody at your level, your, your blue belt, you've got peers, you've got people above you and below you. What would you bring from your experience that you would say, listen, if there's one thing I really had to tell them, the most important thing would be what? Whew, uh, put me on the spot. Um, understanding your dedication to this. This is going to change your life. Um, you need to dedicate the time to the training and to understanding the mental aspect of this and that it will make you a stronger and better person and you can apply these lessons in everything you do. But ultimately, being able to walk away with confidence and having that confidence be built that whether you you work in an office on a nine to five mundane job is what you think your day is to anyone, you know, in law enforcement or not, that this will help inspire your confidence and inspire you to be able to understand mentally and physically you can get yourself out of a situation um, and be able to see the next day. Because all of this is, you know, like Sensei Chris said, I'm I'm a bigger guy uh, and I've always had kind of that ability, but being here gave me a different understanding and level of confidence, uh, and especially after what I went through. Um, And I want all martial arts students to walk away with that confidence and understanding that even if it's a duck and dive and you can deflect a punch, getting away is the best thing to stop and end an altercation if you can. And, you know, I want their confidence to be built and understand that that doesn't matter what your job is. doesn't matter where you are in this world, that confidence you need to have in yourself and your ability and, and with the skills that we're, showing you and then whatever martial art that you partake in, whoever's listening to this. Thanks, Tom. And I really want to just tell Tom how much I appreciate the fact that you would share this, you know, very painful uh, and emotional experience with us. You know, people that are listening, they, you know, they don't get to see Tom's face as he's talking about this, but, but I do. And, um, it, it, it is a, a painful event uh, in his life, but a painful event that he is turning into a growth experience mentally, physically, spiritually. And I think that's maybe a lesson for everybody. Everybody's going to run into very difficult things in their lives, loss of a loved one, loss of work. Um, unexpected things that might happen. Uh, And none of them may be as violent as what Tom went through, but they're all difficult. And and you have to do the work to get through them, like we know that Tom has done, and it's taken some time. And then when you come out the other side, you have to look at that situation and, and not just be like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, but be that this happened to me. And now what can I take from that? And then what can I give from that? To others. And I, I really think that Tom has embraced that. I know Sensei Chris has definitely helped with Tom's path. And we're just hoping that um, 
Tom, you know, sharing this with everybody today, not only again, continues to help him as he recovers from this, but also gives back to the community that I know he loves being part of. Uh, so I really want to thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it gives me a, a different view of you, you know, the next time I see you in person and, uh, you know, just really appreciate that he would share this very personal experience with us. So thank you. Thank you, Sheehan, for, uh, giving me this platform to give back and to, to hopefully, I hope it changes a couple of people's understanding and mindset of what, what we're trying to do and, and what happens in the world. Absolutely. And Sensei Chris, being uh, Tom's direct sensei, I'll, I'll sort of let you close this out because I'm sure you have some some final thoughts here. Thank you, Sheehan. So I'd like to say, Tom, thank you again uh, for joining the dojo, for training, for being a leader, for allowing us to be on this journey with you. I will without a doubt say that you are one of those people that if the shit hits the fan, I want you on my side because the thoughts of you being on the other is not tenable. It's not a winning situation. You know, going forward, as I said, you were a leader in this dojo. We are honored to have you. And we thank you for your attendance and your contributions and all the hard work you put in. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Sensei.